The opinions shared on this show reflect those of the individual speaker and not of any 12-step fellowship as a whole. And though we discuss 12-step recovery and the impact it had in our lives, we do not promote or endorse any 12-step anonymous program. It's time for the Share Recovery Podcast, where we bring you amazing life-changing success stories from addicts and alcoholics all over the world who share their inspiring journey in recovery. And now, here's your host, O. On today's episode of the Share Podcast, Kanae, now 25 years old and four years clean, takes us through six years of drug and alcohol abuse. She started out at the age of 15 drinking alcohol and smoking weed on the weekends, and by her senior year in high school, is consuming drugs and alcohol daily. Barely graduating from high school, Kanae moves to Oakland to start college. Now free from parental supervision, she goes completely out of control, adding cocaine and ecstasy to her roster of drug use. With limited funds to support her ever-expanding drug addiction, Kanae and her gang of misfits, the Hippie Mafia, start shoplifting alcohol at the local grocery store and selling the bottles on campus to pay for their drugs. She completely flunks out her first year of college, so her parents cut her off financially and she is forced to move back home where her shoplifting and drug abuse elevate to yet another level. Realizing she can no longer deny her addiction, she makes a pact with her boyfriend to stop drinking and seek recovery. It's an intense and inspiring journey into recovery. Join us now. Hi, Kanae. Thanks for joining us. Hey, all. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show today. How are you feeling? I am superb. Excellent. You ready to get started? I am. Perfect. So, Kanae, let's dive right in. Tell us about how your life is today, your hobbies, what you do for a living. Take us into your normal daily routine, including recovery. Okay, so I lead a very busy life these days. I work full-time at a marketing agency, and then I actually run an online company in my spare time. So I'm very, very busy on that front, but I'm also super active in my program. I go to, I would say, like two to three meetings on average a week, which is about right for me. And I also have a sponsee that I work with, and I have a sponsor that I work with, of course. And I do a ton of service work. So I'm a part of a really fun group called Whiskey Paw, and we basically... Whiskey Paw? Yeah. (laughs) That's very interesting. Whiskey Paw. I'm looking that one up. Yeah, it stands for the Washington State Council of Young People in AA. And we do all kinds of different service hoping to carry the message to the alcoholic who still suffers, young or old. But, of course, we have a specific audience of young people in the program. Oh, I love it. Sounds wonderful. And tell us, how much clean time do you have, and when is your anniversary date? So I'm about four and a half years sober, and I got clean on June 19, 2010. Perfect. And how old were you the first time you drank or used drugs? And more importantly, how did that make you feel? <laughs> Uh, I was 15 years old and one day. (laughs) (laughs) I remember because... Remember clearly. Yep. It was Friday and I turned 15 on Thursday and I decided that I wanted to try it for the first time. I had taken like little sips here and there as a kid, like my mom drank. So if she ever left the room with her beer in the living room or something, I'd take a little sip, but... I never, like, got drunk or anything like that. So I was 15 years old in one day, and I felt horrible. 
Like, it was a traumatic experience. It was so bad. I got really, really drunk because I also smoked weed the first time. Um, nice. So I was smoking weed and drinking E&J, and I just chugged it. Didn't even know how to, like, sip it or anything. Just chugged it and got super sick, just threw up everywhere, was crying, was emotional wreck, and had the worst hangover in the morning. And so it was, it was horrible. I didn't have that experience that a lot of people say they have where it was horrible, but they still liked it and wanted to do it again. No, I was like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you didn't stick to that resolve. Yeah, little did I know. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that really kicks it all off for us. So I might as well just turn the show over to you, Kanae. It's time for you to share your story the battle against drugs and alcohol, the wreckage it caused in your life, when you hit rock bottom, and finally, your journey into recovery up until today. So, Kanae, take it away. All right. So, like I said, I had my first drink when I was 15 in a day and pretty much hated it, like I said. And so I was like, I'm never going to do this again. And I didn't for a while. But I had friends who had all been drinking and smoking weed since they were in middle school. So I was a very late bloomer for my friend group and they smoked a lot of weed. And so a few months later, I became willing to smoke weed and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to do it, you know, once in a while, whatever, no big deal. And that's kind of where the progression started. You know, first it was just once in a while, but by the time I was a sophomore in high school, so about 16, I was smoking weed on a regular basis with my friends during school, like if we would have like a lunch break, we might go behind the school. There's these like baseball fields and we could walk behind them and there's these little woods and we'd smoke weed back there. And sometimes I'd even get up early to meet my friends and smoke weed before school. (laughs) (laughs) I'm never doing that again. Yeah. So it just, that's kind of where my disease started. It was very, well, very innocent, very silly, just bad teenage girl, you know, just acting out. I can't remember exactly, but I do remember it was probably around junior year that I was like, okay, I'm ready to drink now. And at that point, I was still very cautious about drinking and using. In my home, my dad didn't drink and my mom did, but she was, I mean, she drank like half a beer and put a little foil on the beer to save it, to drink it the next night. (laughs) Oh, wow. Absolutely not an alcoholic. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. so there wasn't really, I never saw my parents drunk, and I just didn't see that in my own family. And then in my mom's side of the family, there was some alcoholism. So her father was like a severe alcoholic and died before I was born. But I never was around him. And then I have an aunt and an uncle who were addicts, but I wasn't really around them while that was happening either. So I just didn't really have a lot of alcoholism or drug addiction in my life until I started hanging out with these bad friends. Right. <laughs> right. Of course. <laughs> the bad friends. These bad friends. Bad influence. So let's see. So around junior year, that's when I kind of started to be like, yeah, I want to drink now. And we would have that year was so fun. It was so awesome. Both that and senior year, 
they would do a keg every Friday at 3.15 right after school. So I'd get off of school, go to the keg, drink as much as I could, as fast as I could, and then I would have to be back home because my parents didn't really let me stay out very late. So I'd have to be home sometimes by like 5 o'clock or 5.30, and sometimes I'd have to like go pick up my brother or go pick up my dad or go pick up my mom or something. And so... I would just run over there, drink as much as I could, and go home. You were driving? I was driving sometimes. Okay, because you said I was picking them up, so I'm like, i got to yep. slam a beer and then go pick up my brother. Yep. Sometimes I would be driving. I didn't own my own car. Sometimes I'd be driving. Sometimes my friends would be driving. But that's kind of where it started with a weekend warrior type thing. And right. if I could get out on Saturday, then I would you know, go try to party, of course. And then... I think it was senior year where everything just started popping off like even more. So my friends all had a lot of freedom, like a lot more freedom than me. And they could be out on school nights, hanging out and partying. And so I always tried to get around that as much as I could. And I had a friend who had a fake ID and so she could always get booze. We would drink at lunch, we would drink after school, and I was just always trying to get my hands on it as much as I could. But at that point, I was very limited in terms of, I mean, I didn't have a way to get alcohol personally. But at this point, I did start, like, whenever I could, getting alcohol, taking it home, hiding it in my room. Sometimes I would smoke weed in my room at home. And that's just where, you know, a lot of it kicked off. And I remember... You know, in my school at the time, I was like an athlete. I was on student government. I was in our diversity club, which did a lot of really great things in our school. I was just a very active student in the school. And senior year was like, I didn't care about any of that. Like, I tried to keep those things going, but really all I cared about was partying. And it made a big difference. Like, I had pretty good grades throughout school, but that last year, you know, I was in danger of not graduating because I couldn't pass a couple classes that had to be passed that year. And so, you know, I don't think of my story as being particularly dramatic or crazy, but there's definitely, you know, I'm a big dreamer. I want to like change the world. I want to live an epic life. And all of that just vanishes because alcohol is the only thing that's important. It's the most important thing in my life. And so, that really became apparent by the time I was a senior. Now, real quick, you said that you would go home and you would smoke weed in your room? Yeah. Didn't your parents smell it? I would do it at certain times. Like, generally, I would do it late at night before I went to bed. So I'd either do it in my room, and it would just be a little bit. Like, I wouldn't, you know, it wasn't like I was smoking a blunt in my room, just whatever, <laughs> you know? Like... <laughs> I'd smoke a little bowl or or sometimes I would like take a shower and I'd smoke weed in the shower and then I would like wash and all the soap smells would like cancel out the weed smell. So this is typical (laughs) Yes. Okay. This is what I was getting to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Any way that I could really I would do it. So then I went off to school in California. And okay. I what part the Bay Area. So I was in Oakland. Okay. You know, I just remember like always being like, oh, I just want my freedom. Like I'd always complain to my parents. I just want my freedom. Like give me more freedom. 
you know, really. You must have loved that movie, Braveheart. Braveheart? I haven't actually seen Braveheart. You've never seen Braveheart? I know, it's so horrible. (laughs) Mel Gibson, Braveheart? I don't. Give me my freedom. Oh, come on, man. Yes. Every addict who's seen that's like, I can relate. <laughs> I can't so, relate. I can't relate to that. But all right, I so always, you're in Oakland and you need your freedom. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, so I always, it's all good. I always wanted my freedom. And when I finally got down there, I had full on freedom. Like, I definitely didn't have as much money as I wanted. But besides that, I had all the time in the world. I could do whatever I wanted. And my alcoholism and drug addiction just took off full steam. When I was down there, I was probably drunk or high every single day. I smoked a lot of weed down there, but then I also started drinking a lot more because, you know, we were on campus and whenever we got alcohol, we would get like massive amounts of alcohol so that we could like store it and have it on hand. And so I would just always have alcohol in my room, like always had beers in the fridge and like a fifth of something so that I could drink whenever I wanted. And I also started to hang around some friends who were really excited about this. We call ourselves the hippie mafia. (laughs) Nice. Oh, dude. (laughs) And essentially what we would do is we would steal booze from the grocery stores because they had like alcohol in the grocery stores, which was different from, I'm from Washington now. So now they have it. But anyways, that's beside the point. We would steal like fifths of alcohol and then we would sell those to other students. And with the money that we gained from the alcohol, we would buy our weed. You know, that's how we would support our habit. And so, um, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. What were you guys called again? The hippie mafia. Okay, this is going to be the title of the show. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hippie Mafia. It's absolutely priceless. I love it. So that happened, and then I was really interested in trying cocaine for the first time. I hadn't, at that point, I hadn't done any other drugs besides weed and alcohol. And so I had a friend who also wanted to do it, and we started doing cocaine together. Of course, we had, like, no money, and we didn't really have, like, an in with a drug dealer, so... We were making like pennies, really, because we were, you know, working maybe, I don't know, seven, eight hours a week at minimum wage. And we would pull together like a hundred dollars and buy like a hundred dollars worth of cocaine and like do it together, which is like a small amount. Like that is not, you know, it's like nothing. Yes. I was just about to say a hundred dollars <laughs> worth of coke in the States. Nothing. It's nothing. And so... Like, that's where my Coke love came from, but it didn't mature very quickly because I had no money. I also tried ecstasy for the first time when I was in college that first year, and I did shrooms for the first time, which was crazy. That was one of the craziest drugs, I think. Oh, yeah, what happened? You know, honestly, I was really lucky. I had a good trip, but okay, it was just very overwhelming. Like, I can just remember looking at my hands and whenever I blinked there would be something different on my hands it would be like oh yeah you know I mean it was just like so weird everything was constantly moving and changing and people's faces looked really weird because it looked like stuff was coming out of their face and so I couldn't really look at people and I remember one of the gals that lived in our dorm she had her whole family visiting her and she was like 
oh, I want everyone to meet my family. And I was like tripping on shrooms. Get out. (laughs) (laughs) And she had these like two younger boys that were playing with each other. They were like playing tag and like running around all of her family members. And I can just remember looking at them and I could see humans, but I was thinking that they were monkeys. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is so weird. And this is all while this woman, this like friend of mine is like, oh, meet my mom and meet my grandma. And I'm like, no, I cannot meet your grandma right now. So that is a horrible trip. (laughs) I mean, it was okay. I like left very promptly. I was just like, nope, I can't do this. But overall, it's good. But yeah, so anyway, so that started everything. It started a habit of doing it whenever I wanted, you know, staying up super late. I would just stay up super late and drink by myself, and then I would sleep in and wouldn't go to class, and it was just a cycle, a vicious cycle. And so by the end of that year, I had failed like three classes, and my parents were like, nope, we're not going to pay for you to go to this private school if you're failing classes, so you have to come back to Washington. So I came back to Washington. And I took like nine months off and I just worked random job and I babysat and I was just partying. My addiction really took off at that point because I wasn't in school. You know, I wasn't like accountable to any big vision or cause. I was just supporting my habit by working at a cafe. This is also a point where my shoplifting habit really took off too. So At this point, I was 19 years old, going on 20. I couldn't buy booze legally, so I would just steal booze all the time. And I would go to the grocery stores and just rack, like, tons of beer, champagne, wine. And um, because at the time in Washington, that's all they had at grocery stores. So I just got accustomed to stealing a lot of alcohol that was just hand in hand with my addiction so I'd do that how'd you get to the grocery store with it sounds like a ton of alcohol well I would like go in in Washington we had just like outlawed plastic bags right so everyone was using these new reusable bags so I would just go in and just put all the booze in my reusable bag and walk out (laughs) 19 years old scandalous absolutely with no Shame and no fear. No it's amazing. I'm, oh, I got this great idea. Yeah. I'm just taking these reusable bags, load them up. Yep. Well, and the wow. best was there was this, and of course, like now I don't do this anymore, and I think it's atrocious behavior. But at the moment, I was like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> there was this grocery store that had two levels, and so like the actual grocery store was on the bottom, and then. They had like a home and garden section on the top floor, but there was entrances and exits on both floors. So I would go in on the grocery store floor and I would literally fill up a cart of groceries, like a literal cart of groceries. I would have like 30 racks on the bottom. I would fill up all my reusable bags with groceries and like tons of booze. And I just walk out the top and I would always pull out like a receipt as if I had just made a purchase, so no one ever thought anything about it. Wow. Yeah. That's impressive. Yeah, I think it was, but it's also, like, horrible, so I can never really... (laughs) No, I'm certainly not condoning or promoting (laughs) this sort of behavior, and I seriously doubt you could get away with it these days, Mm -hmm. all right? 
but it's almost as it's just a testament to the addiction to right. the disease. Right. It just completely takes control and it starts telling you this is genius. Yep. We have just <laughs> found Mecca mm-hmm. and this we're going to keep this rolling. You know, we're just going to let the good times roll forever. Yep. So I would do that a lot. And that's how I supported my habit because I wasn't rich. I didn't have a lot of money and I would be able to trade booze for weed. So I'd always be able to have, you know, booze and weed. And then I reconnected with some old friends of mine who just happened to be drug dealers. They would give me tons of cocaine, like whenever I was with them. And so that's when I started doing a lot more coke. And then my ultimate love, ecstasy, they have another drug dealer friend that just had the best ecstasy. So I started doing that a lot as well. And for me, like that harder drug use only lasted, it didn't last that long. And I'm grateful for this. As I look back, I just never had close friends that were into hard drugs. All of my close friends just wanted to drink and smoke and they weren't alcoholic. They were just young people partying. And so I was really, really lucky to have that association because nobody in my group was ever egging me on. I was always the craziest. I was always the one that wanted to keep partying or wanted to go get something. Most of the people I was around were like, okay with where they were at. And so, yeah, I mean, I fell in love with ecstasy. Unfortunately, my connect got into this huge accident and was no longer so... I had a really hard time finding it after that. And yeah, I don't know. I think that after I just got really into it, I was living at this house with all these college students and I was the only one that wasn't in college. And I lived at that house for like three months and it was just a crazy party house. Like I would invite everyone from high school over like every weekend and we just have these big crazy parties. And of course, all the other roommates that were like actually trying to study and be good kids, they hated it. <laughs> How many people were in the house living there? Ten people. And you were the wreck. And I was the wreck. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> but that's why I only was there for like three months. Oh, so they kicked you out? Yes. Yes, okay. I definitely got kicked out of that house. <laughs> but I also couldn't pay rent, so it was a good situation. But that's really when I had my bottom. Because I was just wasting my life. And, you know, comparatively with a lot of those stories that I hear, I know that, I don't know, it takes what it takes. Like, I definitely had an emotional bottom. Because I remember just getting to a point where I looked at my life and I was like, man, I am totally a waste of space. Like, all these dreams and ambitions and things that I wanted to do in the world, I'm, A, not doing a single thing towards that, but I'm just completely wasting my life away. I'm not doing anything productive. I'm not doing anything good for the world or for myself. And just that feeling of being completely useless and like a waste of life just felt horrible. And so that was, I think, around April of 2009. I, at that point, was like, all right, I'm going to get my life back together. I'm going to stop drinking and smoking for a period and just go back to school and just try to get my life together. So I moved back in with my parents and I did exactly that. I didn't drink or use for the whole summer and I went back to school, started getting really good grades. I think I got a 4.0 that summer and, and I was like, okay, yeah, I'm back to normal. So now I can drink again. And so I started drinking again and really that year things on the outside got a lot better. Like I, you know, was going back to school, I was living at home and mending a relationship with my parents. 
although I was drinking and using, it definitely wasn't as bad as it was before. But the difference was, so prior when I was drinking like every day, you know, I, I wasn't blacking out as much because my tolerance was so high that sometimes I wouldn't even really be that drunk. And now where I was maybe drinking less frequently, it was much harder on my body. And so what happened for me was I got to a point where I just never knew when I was going to black out. Like I could have a couple drinks and black out. I could have 10 drinks and black out. I just never knew when it was going to happen. I remember this time, actually, when I was in my first year of college still, where me and two gals and one of the gals' boyfriend, we were sitting in a room drinking tequila, which you should never sit and drink tequila shots. Like, that's, like, <laughs> the worst idea ever. We're in a dorm room, and we're just taking tequila shots, and I don't even remember getting drunk. I literally remember taking the tequila shot and then waking up in my bed with throw up, all over my chest and in my hair. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I've been there. Just so you know, I have been there. All right. I'm just did a flashback to a very horrible place in my life. So go. Sorry. Yeah. No, it was horrible. It was so gross. I remember yes. trying to wash it out and like the smell wouldn't go away for like three days. It was just horrible. And I could have died. You know, I could have like choked on that. And the thing that tripped me out was I didn't even remember getting drunk you know, my friends were like, oh, that's funny because you were totally coherent and awake and talking to us for a long time and all this happened and you were pouring our drinks for us and all this stuff that I did not remember. And I didn't have a whole ton of nights that were that severe, but I had a lot of nights where I blacked out and didn't remember things. And the other story that I always tell that really shows me that I'm an alcoholic, it's kind of silly, but I was at a party with all of my friends. It's totally fine for me to drink as much as I want, get drunk as much as I want, and I go into the bathroom and chug two beers. You know, to me, that just shows me that I'm an alcoholic because, A, why would anyone do that? Like, right. run into the bathroom by yourself. And it's just like the hiding and wanting to be as drunk as possible and just not being able to stop, you know, just wanting more and more and more all the time. And so I only drink for six years which doesn't sound like a lot to me, but I know. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> it doesn't sound like it to me, but I guess, I mean, if you're drinking alcoholically, it is. It is. But it doesn't matter, like, the circumstances. It doesn't matter how much I drink. What matters is the fact that when I put it in my body, I want more. And it doesn't matter what logical situation you're in why you shouldn't drink, I will drink anyways. Like, there's nothing that's going to stop me. I could be picking up my brother from school, I'll still drink. I could have to wake up early the next morning, I'll still drink. I could have no money. I mean, it just doesn't matter whatever logical situation, which most people would be like, I'm obviously not going to drink right now because that would be so dumb. <laughs> that doesn't even cross your mind. You know? nope. And so that's how I know I'm an alcoholic. That story to me, like, totally points to that. So anyways, started drinking again and ultimately like the guy that I was dating got really concerned. No one else could really tell that I was an alcoholic. They might be like, oh, she's a partier, but no one could really tell because I was just like in that time of life where it's acceptable for people to party. And so, right. You're in college, you know, you're in college. I was 20 and that's what everyone else was doing. So my boyfriend though, he could tell 
because he would be the one on the phone with me when I was crying and having my emotional breakdowns and, you know, getting too drunk to move and all this stuff. And so he suggested that we stop drinking. And I remember this was like on Valentine's Day of 2010. And I was like, no, that's a horrible idea. He was like, no, we should really do it. I can do it with you. And I'm like, well, of course you can do it. You're not an alcoholic. And <laughs> was just like, Did you actually say that? Yes, I actually oh, said wow. that. <laughs> I mean, I knew I was an alcoholic. I just didn't think I had to quit that early. Right. I thought I had two more years before I would actually have to stop. But only an alcoholic would think like that. Like, oh, I have two more oh, years until I will, like, you know, have liver problems or something. So I'll have to stop or whatever. I mean, like, it's crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> the logical thing at that point for me would have been to dump him and keep drinking. But, <laughs> you know, that would have been the logical alcoholic move. But for whatever reason, I took on his challenge. I think part of it was, you know, he and I were really good friends and we really connected on the dream. We both had similar dreams of different types of ways that we wanted to have an impact in the world. And that's probably why. But then again, I just can't justify anything because from that point on, leading up to getting into the program and actually staying sober, I can't really tell you logically why it happened the way it did. And to me, that's just like my higher power guiding that whole process. So I say, yes, I'll stop. And then I didn't go to like any meetings or do any kind of like recovery solution. It was just white knuckling it. And of course, I didn't drink after that, but I relapsed on drugs and really started to see that like I was going to need help probably and he noticed that <laughs> for sure did you know about meetings at the time i had a little bit of exposure to it because i had an aunt that had gotten sober through or she got clean through na but i seriously wasn't even thinking about it at all i was just like i don't know what to do and my boyfriend at the time he had a friend who had gotten sober in aa and she was like two years sober and like a year younger than me so he was like oh my gosh we should go to AA. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because it's like once I walked into that room, that was the full admission that I was an alcoholic and that I needed help and that I needed sobriety. So I really didn't want to do that, but I did. And the first meeting I went to was the weirdest meeting I've ever been to in my whole sobriety. And <laughs> it was like so weird. <laughs> It was two people. It was a meditation meeting. They shut the lights off for like 25 minutes, quiet, which oh wow! when you're new in recovery, there's nothing worse than 25 minutes of silence of just you and your thinking. It's oh. crazy. So I went to that meeting, and because of that experience, at this moment, I have no idea why I went back. But I did. I went to a women's meeting. I got a sponsor there, and then I went to a young people's meeting, and felt so uncomfortable, absolutely uncomfortable, but I identified with people's stories and I got hope because my sponsor was over 20 years sober and she got sober at 19. How old were you at this time? I was 21. Okay, so you were 21. I was 21. Having a sponsor with long-term sobriety that got sober young was something I needed to see that people actually do this deal for a long time and it's a way of life. And then I got to see young people who had six months, a year, two years, five years, 10 years, 
And I got to see that, like, young people my own age were able to stay sober and have fun and recover. And those two things were extremely powerful for me when I first got sober. You know, it's just crazy. You know how it was when in those first three months of sobriety, I was just wanting to die all the time. Oh, yeah. I was absolutely insane because I would go into a meeting. I would be like, yes, I'm an alcoholic. Yes, I don't want to drink. And then I'd leave the meeting and my mind would tell me, you're not an alcoholic. Go have a beer. I didn't understand how those like I didn't get that there was like an addict brain in there. They were all my thoughts. So I was so confused all the time because I just I didn't know what to believe in my own head. That just confusion and awkwardness and anxiety and just overwhelming all the time, up and down, feeling emotions. I know how hard it can be for people who are first experiencing that. I was self-medicating. So like I didn't feel the depression and like the anxiety and stuff. I did, but I was self-medicating and it was working. So it wasn't something that I was super aware of all throughout the day. And then you get sober and then you're like super aware of everything. And it's just very painful. And so that's kind of what it was like when I first got sober. And my first sobriety date was in April. And obviously my current date's in June. And what happened was I had a Vicodin pill that I had stolen from my dad. One Vicodin pill that I'd stolen from my dad and it was sitting on my dresser in my room and like the whole time it had just been sitting there just I wasn't even paying attention to it and then one day I just walked in my room and saw it and I literally just put it in my mouth and ate it obviously I didn't really get high from that because one Vicodin pill but I was like, oh, it's, you know, since I didn't get high, it wasn't a relapse. No big deal. I'm not going to tell anyone. And I lied about it. And, you know, I picked up a 60-day chip, you know, just completely lied about it for a while. <laughs> but after about 30 days, I realized that I had to tell my sponsor about this moment. And so I did. And I told my whole home group and just, you know, got absolutely unconditional love and support from everyone. And I think that's when I fully started my program because that was kind of the last big lie that I had under my belt that I was keeping and turning over that new rock to live an honest life to work on this program and I was working the steps so we just she was like all right we're just going to keep working these steps and that was like third step fourth step territory time and just super grateful for those experiences like getting around the fellowship Getting around other people in recovery was the biggest thing for me at that stage because I was a party girl. Like, I like to be around a party at all times. And that's seriously something that if I didn't know that I could have fun in recovery, I probably wouldn't stay sober because it was so important to me at that time in life to, like, be able to dance and go to clubs and just have that cool, fun life. And I got to have that in sobriety, and it blew my mind. Now, you were fortunate enough that, well, from what you were saying earlier, there was, a, I guess, a young person's group, or was there like a young group? Yep. So my home group was a young people's group. So when I walked in, there was teenagers all the way through mid-30s, but most people were like average age in their early 20s, mid-20s. So I got to be around people my own age, but I also went to meetings with mixed ages as well. But I was lucky to have a lot of young people. So I got sober in Seattle, and Seattle has a lot of young people in recovery. Later, when I went to finish college, I went up north about an hour and a half to a city called Bellingham. And 
there's a ton of young people there as well. So I've really been fortunate to just meet a lot of great people that, and especially the women in recovery that I can identify with and just be goofy and have fun and stay up all night and do all those things that we like to do. You know, for some people, maybe it's reading a book in their house on a Saturday, which they never did sober. And the fact that you can do that sober now is like a huge blessing. And you're so grateful for that. Whatever it is for each person, you have to have that experience, I think, of doing those things that you like to do sober. Did they have certain activities that the group as a young group they would do together? I mean, nothing different from any other group. We'd go out to eat after at Denny's, which is like typical. So many groups go out to eat at Denny's after their meeting. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The Denny's extravaganza. Yep, the meeting after the meeting. (laughs) Lumberjack slam or Uh whatever, moons over my hammy, whatever, greasy, fatty, whatever, with lots of french fries and ketchup. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Lots of coffee. <laughs> Lots of coffee. Lots of coffee. So there's the meetings after the meetings, and you got, and that's well, typically what we all do. Yep, that's typically what we all do. Is just, I mean, of course we had like parties and stuff, but a big thing that actually happened when I was pretty new, I had around 70 days. Well, let me backtrack. I had around, God, less than 30 days, and a woman in the program announced this conference called Ikipa which is the International Conference of Young People and Alcoholics Anonymous. And this old-timer lady, she announced it in a meeting, and I love to travel. I didn't have any money at the time, but I just, you know, it was in New York, and I was like, sure, I'll talk to her about this young people thing in New York, whatever. And so, you know, we connected and exchanged info, and again, I'm literally, like, probably a couple weeks sober or something, and... She called me back a few weeks later, asked me for my first and last name. And I was like, why? And she was like, I'm going to buy you a plane ticket so you can go to this conference. And I was like, what? Oh, my God. And you're kidding. I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Wow. That's a God shot. Yeah. It was really crazy. So me and she actually did this for a few other young people in the program So there was like a group of maybe six of us, maybe five or six of us. And we, you know, to try and help support the cost, we did all these like really funny fundraiser things where we would wash cars, but it could only be for people in the program. (laughs) And we'd like do yard work for people in the program. And I bake cookies and cupcakes and like bring them to meetings. And after meetings, I'd like sell them outside of meetings, <laughs> like trying to make extra money. Yeah, she paid for my airfare and my hotel to be able to go to this conference. How much um, time did you have? At the time of getting to the conference, I had around 70 days sober. Oh, my God. Yeah. That is such a miracle. Yep. It was awesome. I was, yeah, that was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. And the conference itself, So this is a stage. I'm 70 days sober. I think my life is over and that pretty much I just have to read books and go to bed at 8 o'clock. That's what I'm thinking. (laughs) Boring. (laughs) Boring. And I have major reservations about staying sober and being happy in a sober life. I walk into a conference and we are staying at a hotel in the middle of Times Square. And this hotel had 5,000 young people absolutely crazy fired up about being sober. And 
I walk in there and of course there's like great speaker meetings and great panels and just everyone's super friendly. I remember two big experiences at that conference that just changed my life. One of them was they have these great dances at YPAW conferences and I walk in and this is my first sober dance. I walk in and there's tons of people. Everyone's having fun, laughing. And I seriously start looking for the bar or a keg because I'm like, there's no way. (laughs) There's no way. And I'm looking, trying to find it. And my friend is, what are you doing? There's everyone sober here. You know, this is what we do. And I was just, oh, my God, that's crazy. Just had a blast. And then they offered a yoga class and a woman in the program actually led the yoga class and it was in this really cool room in the hotel where one of the walls was actually a skylight so it was like a huge skylight and this was the end of summer in New York so it was just sun coming in and the room was warm and in the yoga class she was like okay you're going to turn this over to your higher power and you're going to if you want you can give this practice to someone who you resent she was just talking program and talking steps during that yoga class and it was one of the most amazing spiritual experiences I just felt so zenned out I was so mad that she was actually from New York I'm like please come back to Seattle and teach me yoga it's so awesome (laughs) but it was cool I walked out of that class and I was literally high went back to my room and sat in fetal position for like 25 minutes because that's all I could do and that's What I get from YPAW conferences, I go every year now because it fills me up spiritually and it reminds me that I'm a part of a bigger deal. I always feel disconnected. Feeling disconnected is like the biggest way that my addict can try to get me back out. Nobody likes me. I'm all alone. Nobody understands me. I'm terminally unique, right? Like that's, that is, and that's all of us, but I have it the worst, right? (laughs) 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 <laughs> We've all heard that one. Right. I hear that from my sponsors. Oh, you don't understand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so there's just something about getting around that many sober people from all different corners of the U.S. and around the world that I can't deny it. I can't deny that this is a legitimate way to live my life. Of course, there's tons of great stories there, too. I mean, you meet people who got sober at, like, 13 and are, like, 30 and have, like, a million years of sobriety. And you're like, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense, but okay. And then you hear their story and you're like, okay, that makes sense. I'm really grateful that person got sober at 13. But, yeah, so young people in in AA are a huge part of my recovery. And that's where I do a lot of my service work because I had that experience and I want to give that experience to other new people in the program. So, I mean, yeah, now I just, I'm doing that. I'm doing a lot of service work in my recovery and I'm approaching five, which supposedly is like a really volatile time for most people in recovery. And it's actually supposed to be when you get your head out of your ass. Yeah. Supposedly, I guess it's like, there's a lot of resistance with that happening, but um, I just, I'm experiencing a different time in my recovery where I'm hyper aware of more character defects, more things that I want to change that I'm not okay with in my life. And sometimes that can be really challenging to deal with. I've definitely 
can say that I've had depression for the last year, just feeling so bad about myself and just having horrible thoughts and feelings. And I stayed sober through every day of it. You know, I don't think that sobriety is harder than life. I think getting sober is really hard, but once we get sober, and this is just my personal opinion, I don't think that like if I wasn't an alcoholic, that my life would be any easier. That's just just life on life terms. Yeah, I just think life is just difficult, and I personally think that my life is harder than everyone else's life. But that goes back to the terminally unique thing. I don't think that's actually true. I think that's just what I like to think. And today, my life is absolutely amazing. It doesn't always feel amazing, but I have all of my needs covered and more. I have friends and family that love me and want to be around me. I have mentors. I obviously have mentors in the program, but I have mentors outside of the program that want to help me grow and personally develop in other ways. And I actually have a real shot at accomplishing some of my long-term dreams and visions of helping people all around the world. I can actually try to do that, whereas in my addiction, I just didn't have any chance. There's no possibility of me following through on anything. Well, what's your big plan on saving the world? <laughs> As of now, I mean, I, I always like to keep the door open because I never know what opportunities are going to come my way. But really where my heart is, my dad's side of the family is from Senegal, West Africa, and I have a huge family over there. And so first things first, I want to get myself in a place where I'm financially independent, where I can buy my time back and have freedom of choice on a daily basis of how I spend my time. So that's step number one. And then from there, I can actually help my family, both financially and with development, how to inspire and encourage and help my family members believe that they can have the life that they want, you know, because they don't live in a country where literally in this country, if you want to do something great, you can. And it'll still be hard. You always have to do hard work if you want something yes. great. But you really have the personal freedom here to create your own story. And it's not that way in other places around the world. So to empower my own family members to do that and then to go back to Senegal and have an impact on that country. I want to do something. I'm guessing it'll be through business. I'm hoping that I can develop leaders in that country that will stand on my shoulders. And when I die, they'll be, you know, furthering on the work that I want to do there. But from a general sense, what I want to do is develop leadership in that country and encourage and be a catalyst for social programs that are more efficient and more available, but also business, bringing more tourism to the country, allowing more opportunities for jobs, different things like that. So it's a general goal right now. It's big. It's big, but I know it'll get done. It's been in my heart since I was like 12. I know it'll get done. And as long as I stay sober, I mean, I've just had so many opportunities come into my life in the last year that is like, wow, this is actually possible. I can see something starting to happen that'll get me to helping that country. I think that's probably about it. I that don't know. is beautiful. You have a beautiful story, Kene. And I love where you're at at this moment. The only limits that you can put on your dreams or your goals are the limits you put yourself because there really are no limits. Mm -hmm. Anyone can change the world. You know, there's, there's examples and leaders out there 
you know, Gandhi, Martin Luther King, you know, there's leaders out there that have made huge impacts in the world and there's no reason why we can't. I'm trying to do the same right now with this podcast. I want to impact the world and help those like me and like you that have, you know, similar stories that we can share with each other and more importantly, share with people that are new in the program and new in recovery. And they can say, wow, if they can do it, I can do it. If they went through what they went through, I can go through what they went through. And here's a roadmap. Here's what we did to get out of the mess that we were in. And this is what we're doing today to maintain, you know, that life that now we can think big and dream big instead of trying to find ways and means to get more or being part of the hippie mafia. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Oh, man. That is just priceless. (laughs) so thank you so much for sharing your experience strength and hope with us that was an amazing story and again it's very inspirational to our newcomers and i want to go into our final section of the show which i call for the newcomer so i'm going to ask you five questions about early recovery and you're going to respond with inspiring and insightful answers you can share with our newcomers are you ready i'm ready (laughs) all right Excellent. Number one, what was keeping you from getting clean or staying clean when you first got introduced to recovery? Well, when I first made a decision to stop drinking, like I said, I didn't have any support. So it was really my association that was keeping me from staying sober. My friends that were still drinking and using, that was like the big one. But the other thing when I got into early recovery, even though I didn't go back out, I had really big reservations about being too young or just that I was too early in my addiction to quit. Like from the outside, it didn't look that bad. And I had heard all these other people's stories and just didn't really have a ton of consequences comparatively to other people who I heard talking about their sobriety. So I always wondered like, oh, I'm too young or it's too early to quit. Maybe I could go back out and drink another year or two. Yes, which is very similar, especially at that early age when you first come into recovery. Your first thought is, wait a minute, I just turned 21 here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, you know, I, you know, when you said that, I go, that must have been the first thought in your mind is, wait a minute, I'm 21. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I, I never had a legal drink. I didn't stay clean off of drugs, but I did not ever have a legal drink. I was sober on my 21st birthday. So that was definitely something that ran through my mind a lot. Really? I'm 21 and I'm like giving up my legal right to drink? That's crazy. Yeah, (laughs) the irony on that one is just on a massive level. It's beautiful. Yeah. (laughs) I love it. All right. So number two, at what point did you have a spiritual awakening, that aha moment in recovery when you accepted that you were powerless over drugs and alcohol, but for the first time had developed the hope that you could recover? I think for sure. When I had taken that Vicodin pill and lied about it and then came clean about it and everyone loved me and just got that unconditional love and support from the fellowship and that's where I was really able to turn over, okay, now I'm sober and now I see how bad my addiction is because when I took that Vicodin pill, I didn't think that it was relapsing. I didn't think it was bad because I didn't get high from it, but my body was so programmed to just put in my body whatever it saw that was a drug or a drink. And so 
that taught me how insidious my disease is and that I really do need to work the steps and I really do need to protect myself from that. So I just became super willing, and I think that was probably my first spiritual experience. Hard to say. That's that moment where you realize that you are powerless. Mm -hmm. It took you absolutely, I guess the term would be, there was just no thought process in it. It was just an involuntary reaction mm -hmm. from hand to mouth, just like that. So anytime, any place, it could happen. Yep. Perfect. All right, number three. Do you have a favorite book you would recommend to a newcomer that you read in early recovery? Big book. <laughs> it's pretty much the only book. And the 12 and 12, too. But yes. the big book for me when I read it, so I am half African and half white. So I'm a woman of color in my 20s when I first got sober. And I could not believe that I identified with so much in this book that was written by a middle-aged white guy in the 40s that was probably <laughs> of different socioeconomic status. I just, it was boggled my mind how I identified so much with it. And so that book, like, came alive for me. And my sponsor would read the book with me. So she would have me read, and then I would call her, or we would get together, and then we would reread the part that I read and already highlighted and she would ask me, like, what did you highlight? What did you think about it? And she just helped that book come alive for me. Because, you know, if you just read through the big, I mean, there's a lot. You read one paragraph, oh, and fun. there's so much in one paragraph. And so she would stop, and she would talk about her own experience with different parts in the book. And I really appreciated that. But she made me do the work first. Like, she'd always want me to read it first, highlight it first, think about it first, so that when we got together... I had something to say, too, and it was awesome. Beautiful. I love it. And number four, what is the best suggestion you have ever received? I have two. Stick with the winners. Yes. And listen for the similarities. So listen for the similarities, obviously, is one that everyone does. I ended up taking it one step further, which is to identify with the differences. So being new and young, not having a lot of those yet, I had to believe that other people's stories would be my story if I ever went back out. I had ah. to believe it. So when I hear you or anyone talking about some experience that's, that I've never had, I automatically like say, oh, that could be you, girl. If you ever get a cute idea about you or only having a phase or whatever, that will be your life if you ever turn back. Those are called the yets. Yep. Got a lot Absolutely. of yets. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By the grace of God, you never have to experience it. Hopefully. Mm-hmm. And number five, if you could give a newcomer only one suggestion, what would it be? Keep coming back. I know it's like <laughs> so cheesy, but I mean, keep coming back no matter what. I know people that kept relapsing for like five years in the rooms and now they have 20 years sobriety. So I think sobriety is available for anyone who is willing to do the work. And I don't know what it takes for any person to get sober, but I have to believe that through all the stories that I've heard, it's possible for anyone. Well, it is if they keep coming back. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful suggestion. Trust me, it ain't the first time it's been suggested. Yeah. So it is perfect. So great suggestions, Kine. And before we say goodbye, I have one more question for you. 
Of all the meetings you have attended anywhere in the world, which is your favorite and where is that group located? So, of course, it's the home group and it's called Lake City Young People. It's located in Seattle, Washington, and we meet on Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock. Perfect. Beautiful. We have now reached the end of our show. Thanks for joining us. And as we say here in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Pura Vida. (laughs) (laughs) That was very good. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Kanae. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on the Share Recovery Podcast. To check out the show notes page on this interview or to thank our guests for sharing their story, go to www.thesharepodcast.com. While you're on the website, don't forget to sign up for our free newsletter to stay up to date on the latest news, podcasts, and interviews. Want to be one of our guests and share your story? Then go to our website and click on the Share Your Story button. We share our inspiring recovery stories every Tuesday. So subscribe to our show on iTunes or Stitcher Radio to get your free weekly download. We'll see you then.